Well, I just have to tell you, I've been wanting to talk to Paul Emmerich, France, again for a long time, and now it's perfect because we've had uh, a wonderful conversation off before we started recording about all the things that are going on. Paul, I'm so glad you're here. Thanks so much for having me. It's so good to see you. Oh, I know. Yeah, well, we've, it's been some time, but we both have been talking about some of the same things, and it's almost like we have to reflect on these. Absolutely. Especially now, since you wrote another book. <laughs> I, I, you're just amazing. And, and this one, we're going to talk about, uh, about humanizing distance learning. I, especially now in this pandemic. I mean, you know, it's just so many things. And so when I saw your question on your, on your website, on their Twitter feed, it's in some ways, shouldn't we always be teaching from a distance? It just, it's like, we need to talk about that. So why did you, why are you saying that? Yeah. Um, so before I go into that, I want to, um, I think whenever we're talking about distance learning, I mean, honestly, this is this is probably true even before the pandemic. Whenever we're talking about what we're doing or what we're able to do in our classrooms, right, we have to acknowledge the the privilege that our situation brings us, you know. And when I was doing distance learning back in April and May um, with a group of you know twenty one kids, um, I was working for a private school um, with pr a predominantly affluent community. Um, where the kids had access to devices, access to Wi-Fi. A lot of them had parents that were home with them or an adult that was home with them that was there to, you know, feed them and support them and, and all those things. Um, so I think it's important to, to acknowledge that because that's not the case for a lot of people in our country. And so I don't want to, for a second, you know, imply that distance learning will be easier if you just teach differently, because that's not the case for everybody. Um, but it is the case for some. And um, so when I was doing distance learning back in April and May, um, and partially through talking with teachers at my school, but also talking with teachers on Twitter and Instagram and, you know, just the broader teaching community, I noticed this, this problem where teachers were sort of replicating old practices that weren't working prior to the pandemic. They're replicating them digitally. Um, and it was making their lives a lot harder. And it, it was these kind of like worksheet, worksheet, workbook driven practices, kind of based in rote memorization, you know, those more traditional practices um, that, I, that I call like kind of the industrialized, you know, where it's, it's more about content consumption. I noticed them trying to replicate those online and it clearly wasn't working, right? Because those are, in order for those practices to work really well, it kind of requires someone to be there micromanaging the kids and hovering over them. And, and all of a sudden we are not in the same physical space as our kids trying to teach in this old way. And it's like, we can't open the book for them. We can't point to where we want to point on, on their paper. We can't show them, we can't do it for them. And unfortunately that's what was happening in a lot of classrooms prior to the pandemic. So, um, so the idea of, or the question, in some ways, shouldn't we be teaching from a distance is intended to be a provocation for teachers, you know, where, and I should be clear, you know, I, I don't mean it as 
an endorsement of distance learning as a you know, staple in 21st century pedagogy. What I mean is, in some ways, shouldn't we always be teaching for, for student independence? Um, and I should, and I will, um, I want to direct everyone who's listening to this towards Zaretta Hammond's book, Culturally Responsive Teaching in the Brain, because she is responsible for um, a dramatic shift in my thinking around what it means to be an independent learner. And I wrote about, I used that work in my first book and in this book as well. Um, and so it really is, you know, it's, it's a provocation and a challenge to teachers, you know, teach for independence. Don't teach for content acquisition and mastery. Teach for student independence. So both of us have been talking about this for a long time, about agency and autonomy. And, and uh, so, but it still doesn't make sense to some teachers because they, they only know what they know or they don't know what they don't know. I mean, they, and I've been observing, you know, they bring me in and say, hey, just check out my, my virtual class. And they've set up a whiteboard behind them and it looks just like the classroom. And I'm like, ah. Yeah. I <laughs> and, mean, oh, you know, I, they're trying. They're trying. But I, I guess the whole idea of helping them understand this idea of letting go and encouraging voice and encouraging kids to be self-confident so they can be, you know, own their learning. Is that what you're, that's what you mean, right? Yeah, I, that's definitely what I mean. I think also too, you know, it's, and I, I, I try to address this in the book, you know, there's so much nuance here, right? Um, that's in some places, it's not necessarily a teacher problem, right? It's like a system problem too. Some teachers are forced to teach in a certain way. I've heard stories of teachers that are, were required, at least in the spring, to send home packets. Not because they wanted to, but because their districts were saying, like, we can't, we can't do video learning so, or video conferencing, so you need to send homework for your kids every... And, like, a lot of those teachers probably knew that that was not a good thing to do. But, again, it's like we're in the middle of a pandemic and people are, are left with tough choices. You know, it's like, do I do the thing my administrator says to do, or do I do what I think is right and, you know, risk getting in trouble or even losing my job? And that's, that's really hard, you know? Um, but I think you're, you're spot on, right? It's about teaching for student empowerment, teaching for independence and teaching, teaching for those moments when we can't be right next to our kids, you know, and they have to actually make decisions on their own. And that's why that, that analogy of teaching from a distance, I, I hope, it outlives this time period because I did not write a book to just give tips on distance learning. In fact, if, if anyone who's listening reads the book, you'll see that it's, it does give some practical tips for distance learning, but really it's about codifying a new vision for teaching and learning that will outlive this moment in time. And hopefully the next time we're in some sort of crisis, you know, it will, it will get us through that time as well. I've been trying to transform education for 30 some years. I'm wondering. It's hard. <laughs> well, we've gone backwards. I mean, yeah. we, we did let go a little bit. There were some times where we were doing open classrooms and co-teaching and project-based learning. And there was a lot of things that we were doing. And then something happened during No Child Left Behind and some other times where uh, that's where I got kind of like, like you, 
<laughs> I said, I got to get out there and change this, you know. And the idea of what you're saying is, just like I was saying about personalizing learning, which now I'm talking about defining your why so you can own you, your your story, your learning, your... The, the problem is, is parents and, and others that have gone through the system think that's the only way that you can teach is the way they were taught. So it's, it's a matter of sharing strategies like you do in your book uh, about how you can change this teacher-learner relationship, even in a distance environment, you know, in, in a remote teaching environment. And, uh, and that can carry over after when you're back with them. I think that's what you're saying. Absolutely. Yeah. It's about, it's about changing the way we think about teaching um, now that we have this new constraint on us. Um, and I agree with you about parents. You know, I think, I think I have a lot of, I'm not a parent yet. I hope to be someday. Um, <laughs> um, um, but I have a lot of sympathy for parents, you know, like I, because I, I've reflecting on my own growth and evolution as a teacher, you know, I used to do some of the things I say not to do now. Um, I think we all did at one point because we all learned in this system and we all became teachers in this system. And so there's going to be some vestigial structures and pedagogies that are really hard to get rid of. I still find myself struggling with things like that. I still do. Um, and I think what's really important, and this is one thing I tried to do in the book, is name it. You know, I think once we name it and we can identify it, um, we can work through it. And what I name in the book, and again, I'll, I'll say that, like, this is not, um, I think what I, what, I, what I write about is a pattern um, or a trend I observed, but it's not something that I came up with on my own. Um, but it's, if you look at the characteristics of white supremacy, which is, which was, um, so this is from, uh, I believe her name is pronounced Tima Okun and Kenneth Jones. They identify characteristics of white supremacy. And if you just read through their characteristics of white supremacy, you can actually see it in our teaching. So one of them is paternalism, which is the idea that like you're kind of up here and the kids are kind of down here and you're there to help them or save them or, you know, you're the all knowing being in the classroom. And I think that leads us to micromanage our kids. I think that leads parents to micromanage their kids, too. And so when I say like I have sympathy for parents, I mean, like I see those characteristics of white supremacy in myself and I'm grateful to people like Tima Okun and um, Kenneth Jones and Leila Saad, you know, who have taught me a lot about where white supremacy exists in my life and how I can, you know, work myself out of those. But I don't think we're going to get anywhere until we help people see, teachers, parents, and even students, administrators see that these characteristics of white supremacy exist in our lives and they make us think there's only one right way to do things. They make us want to compete with each other. They make us want to micromanage others so they'll do it our way. You know, it's like, and as a self-proclaimed type A person who likes order and structure, as anyone who knows me well, <laughs> you know, it's hard to, it's hard to work yourself out of that. Um, and so that's why I felt like it was important to, I, to, you know, I, to name that in the book 
because it's not also then it's not personalizing it towards a person saying you're a bad person for this. It's, Hey, this is like an ugly part of who we are as a society, but it's not hopeless and you have work to do just like I do. And we can do it together if we talk about it. So one of my reflections, reflection six was with Hedrick Nichols on our journey to anti-racism and understanding our privilege and, uh, and being okay about realizing, because when you say white supremacy, that kind of scares people. Yep. And what I'm finding is that I needed to learn more. So I've been reading every book I can read about it. I've been talking about it. And sometimes I'm called out on it. And then I realize you're so right. As a teacher and maybe a parent, because I raise my kids and my kids are telling me now they're your age. <laughs> they're telling me all the things I did wrong. <laughs> and, I, and yeah, I did. But I didn't realize at the time because that's how I learned. And teachers, like I said, we were taught to be the experts in the room. We were taught to know more than our students. I have to tell you, I'm finding out how much I don't know now. I taught social studies I didn't realize how many lies I was teaching, especially about um, uh, systemic racism that has been going on since the Civil War and before, way before, you know, way, mm -hmm. way, 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 mm -hmm. way. But it's like I had no idea that I had really screwed up everything only because I was part of the system and I just went along with it. Now... I'm talking out and people are yelling at me and saying, no, 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 you're wrong. <laughs> and I thought, you know what? Um, I'm like you as an independent consultant. Um, I can kind of say what I want, but I also realize that I have a lot to learn. And then that's the, that's the piece that I want teachers to get is it's okay to be wrong, but also to learn and unlearn and share what you learn and also encourage students to um, maybe even challenge us on what we say. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and that's that goes back to the idea of, you know, sort of repositioning ourselves in the classroom. We're not the all-knowing beings. I think that teachers serve a role in the classroom, right? Like we can definitely bring our knowledge of child development and pedagogy into a classroom. But our kids have lots of questions and our kids know things that that we don't know, you know, it's, I'm actually, so one of the benefits of being able to work in, I'm doing like pod teaching and one-on-one -on -one tutoring right now is I'm allowing, well, not allowing, I'm, I mean, in some ways I am allowing, but um, I, I have the opportunity to like, let my students follow their interests more than I have before. And it, it works in a setting like that, right? I don't think that always works in a in a really big classroom, but one of my students wants to learn about the universe and she is like, she blows me away at how she's able to comprehend things like space-time. Like we watched a brain pop video on space-time and she's like, oh yeah, I get it, it works like this and blah, blah. I was like, how did you figure that out? You know, I didn't, I, I am wrapping my mind around that concept still, you know? And it's, it's giving me these, this insight into like, I definitely contribute something to our conversations. You know, I help her with like organizing her notes as she's working on this project. And I, I, I'm, I'm certainly helping her and offering something, but 
she has strengths I don't have, you know, and she's, I'm able to learn along with her. And so I, the more and more I teach, it's, you know, I realize that my role is, is, is partnership. You know, I offer some things, but I also get some things in return. And I, I, I hope teacher, more teachers can see that, that that's like something that they can do as well. Not only because it's good for the kids, but it's also really good for the teachers too. Cause you feel like, oh, I'm getting something out of this too. Like I'm learning something and I'm actually bonding with a kid over this really interesting topic, you know? Oh, I love, now, actually I've been talking about this for about 30 years about being partners and learning. And, and uh, everyone thought I was nuts because what do you mean? Why not? And, and here's the thing, every teacher I know that has done what you're doing never wants to go back. Because what happens is when you see the aha moments and, the, and learners of all ages, because I see this with even my professional development when I do it and I tell people to touch their head, they all touch their head and I'm thinking, they're doing whatever I tell them. I wonder <laughs> if they realize... <laughs> how much control I have over them and I didn't yeah. even know it. And, and I'm thinking, I got to change the way I do PD now. I have to do all of it. Everything we're doing is been conditioned with this idea of us knowing more than you do kind of feeling. It's, it's amazing. That's, that's always a big takeaway for me from, from a conference is like when you go to a session that's on student agency or, you know, anything that's about really student-centered learning or empowering students. And then you just sit there and you look at somebody talk for 45 minutes. It's, <laughs> it's kind of wild, right? Cause you're like, wow, that you've identified this as important, but you're not teaching us in this way. You know, and I believe when I work with teachers that, you know, I want them to experience the pedagogy that I'm trying to, to talk with them about. And I also try to acknowledge, you know, I am not going to claim to know everything about this. I'm going to tell you where, you know, where I'm at in my journey on this and what I think about this, but I want to hear what you think too. And I want you to push back on me. I want you to ask me questions. And I say that to my kids too. I say, you know, like, ask me questions. Tell me if you think I got something wrong because then we can talk about it. I want to be in your class. <laughs> I want to be in your class. <laughs> Maybe we should just do this more often. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. Well, you know, um, you talked about in your book, deindustrialization. Yep. Yep. Uh, let's just kind of do a quick thing about that. Cause gosh, we could talk for hours yeah. on that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so the idea of industrialization, right. It goes back to that idea of the factory model, um, for education where it's, it's really about prepackaged content and just kind of like giving it to the kids and hoping they acquire it so they can do well on a test. Um, and, you know, perhaps that was useful at some point. Um, I, I was not, you know, alive when that idea kind of first started in the education system. None of us really were. Um, and, but what I, what I see is that that method of teaching and learning works for a really specific type of kid with a really specific goal set or goal, um, really specific goals or like a really specific path. And that usually fits into like the traditional mold of, and it's also, it's all, all they also fit into that sort of 
paternalistic pedagogy where they thrive off of someone just telling them what to do, telling them how to do it, and then, you know, um, replicating it. And I think what so many teachers have seen, right, is that it might make them quote unquote successful in the short term in school because they get good grades, they do well on their tests. But I think what they also see then is that they get beyond, they get to a place where they're actually expected to stand on their own two feet and they can't do it because they don't have someone spoon feeding. And, you know, I think there's a, there's a fine line here to take into consideration between, you know, self-reliance and, and um, dependence, you know, because you don't want someone to be entirely self-reliant. That's actually, so individualism is another characteristic of white supremacy, right? Where it's like me, 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 me. And we see that a lot in our society, like do it on your own, rugged individualism. And I think that's responsible for a lot of the problems we're seeing right now. So it's not necessarily about doing it all on your own. It's about like relying on yourself when you can, right? And not becoming over-reliant on a peer it's like codependence. You don't want codependence. You want to be able to stand on your own when you can, but then also like lean into people when it's necessary. And of course, like that's a really messy statement to make, right? Like there's no clear flow chart for when you lean on somebody versus when you lean on yourself, you know? But I think that's why we have to humanize learning because it's it's very process oriented. It's like kids have to learn that for themselves. When's it appropriate to reach out? When can I do this on my own? Everyone's different in that way, you know? Well, the one thing I found is people are starting to do more. I'm learning more from reaching out. Yeah. I, yeah. I'm, I'm finding that if I'm doing all this on my own, because uh, I, I mean, I wrote books on personalized learning, and then I went, uh-oh, wait a minute, we have to do more me to we. We need to be more connecting and bringing in the culture and and building a community to support us. It's, you know, like I say, it takes a village. Yeah. Well, we all need yeah. our own village. And we need to figure out that maybe we don't know it all ourselves, right? Totally. We can do some of these things, but if we can reach out and have these conversations like I am with you, uh, I, I don't even mind if someone says, oh, well, I'm going to challenge you on that because I almost wish we could have those deep conversations like debates where you almost take one side or the other and you really can, you know, kids can talk about it deeper. And right now when they go, okay, the answer is, all right, I got it right. Okay. It's that game of school that we got to kind of shake up. It's that is not going to, like you said, they're going to get out of school, and then what happens to them if that's all they know? Totally. I think that, and that speaks to the idea of deindustrialization, right? Because when you industrialize something, you are trying to mass produce a guaranteed product, right? And we've seen that that doesn't work in schools because everyone's different. And so part of deindustrializing the curriculum is like making a classroom based on, or, or creating a classroom environment that's grounded in dialogue, discourse, debate, <laughs> disagreement, you know, and having kids actually think critically about something, you know, oh, there's more than one, even math, right? Everyone's always like, oh, math, you know, there's always a right answer in math. And it's like, I get why people are saying that. Like, I, I get I get where they're coming from when they say that. And yes, like, seven times seven is 49. 
always probably will be. However, there's different ways to get to seven to get to 49. Yeah. You know, that's a. I think that's such a classic example, right? Because I have parents now that I work with, and I've worked with in the past, like very well-intentioned parents, right? Like that are like they just need another math facts. I'm like, I agree with you. Like, I do want them to be able to compute that efficiently because it's going to make learning easier for them down the road, right? If they're in calculus and trying to <laughs> try, that's not, you know, it's important, but we don't have to do it in the way that we used to do. We can do it in a way that's like, oh, I did it seven times five plus seven times two. How did you do it in your mind? And we can have a conversation about it. I was in, there's two things I want to say when you brought that up. I was in a, a professional development with other consultants and one consultant, it was for math, eighth grade math teachers. And they said, uh, she says, why don't we try this? We start with the answer and you have to come up with the problem. And they reached in and got a standard and they all had to come up with the problem around the standard and share it. I thought that was really cool. And then yeah. yesterday I did a FaceTime with my granddaughter, who's seventh grader, who said, finally, my teacher gave me something in math that is real, like how to do tips or, or how to calculate a, you know, a percentage on something that actually is real and authentic. She even said the word authentic. I went, who are you? I guess you're my granddaughter. And I thought, maybe kids, if we ask them, how do you, where do I use this in the real world? Yeah. Show me some ideas. And that's where, you know, maybe even come up with a project or an idea around it. You know, one of another one of my students in one of my pods, um, we do passion projects. Um, and she um, she wanted to start a business. And um, we have conversations. When we do passion projects about like constraints and purpose. Um, and so I said, you know, I want you to identify some of your constraints I wanted her to just sort of put some boundaries around it. Like, we're not going to be able to start an actual business in six weeks. So let's work. This will be kind of like a make-believe thing. Anyway, um, she wanted to start a bakery, she said. And I said, oh, that sounds awesome. So interesting. You know, what do you think goes into a bakery? And, you know, we, we actually, we called, a, we called a bakery and she like talked to the, the owner of the bakery and like learned all this stuff. And it turned into this enormous math problem because I had her make a budget. And I said, well, how much money do you think you need and how many cakes are you going to have to sell in order to, you know, keep your business going every month? And I mean, so our little pod ended up all doing it together because she wanted some help with it. And I mean, it was really good fifth grade content, honestly. And um, they ended up all like they found the prices for all the um, different ingredients. And then they calculated like, how many cakes they could get out of each unit. And then they calculated like the price per cake. And it was just this, it was really complex math, you know, for their age. And, but it was authentic, you know, and it was like, I want to open this bakery. I got to figure this out. And it was really cool. Even when she was, uh, when she was reflecting on her project, she was like, the math was really, really hard. And I never realized how much math went into making a bakery. I was like, yeah, it's everywhere. Isn't that cool? You know, it's like a cool thing for them to realize when you embed it in something that actually matters to them. Isn't that amazing? You and I have been talking about this for so long and the kids came up with it. Yeah, it's so cool. <laughs> I tell you, well, 
Darn. I wish I could talk to you all day. (laughs) (laughs) I I think what I want to do is we're going to, this is going to be the beginning of one of them, but there was one thing you mentioned before we end this was ed tech minimalism. What do you mean by that? Yeah. Um, So I've been feeling this way for a while now about ed tech, Um, but it, it made me, uh, just distance learning in general made me think about it even more, you know? Um, because in this current era, we're forced to use way more digital technology than we've probably ever wanted to. I'm sure there's a small subset of the population that's really digging this right now, but most of us aren't, right? Um, um, and so I think it's like, it's, it's, again, it's a challenge. It's a provocation for teachers, you know. How can you use education technology in a way that's minimalist so that we're able to center human connection as much as possible. Um, The reality is that kids are gonna be staring at screens, but there's a way that, I think there's a way that you can do that, um, that doesn't dehumanize them, it doesn't make them, it doesn't industrialize the curriculum. Like one of my biggest gripes about ed tech are the programs that just like spit content at kids. And having tried them many times before, more times than I'm proud to admit, you know, it's always the same. It's always the same end product. The kids who know how to play the game of school do really well on them, and the kids who struggle flounder. And that's like operating in opposition to everything we, as a collective group of teachers, want for kids. Right? We want everyone to have the same opportunity to be able to grow, and that those programs don't do it. So I think, like in terms of ed tech minimalism, doesn't mean don't doesn't mean anti ed tech. It doesn't mean no tech. It means be really mindful about what tech you're using and why. And so in my first book I write, I had, I had four questions. And it was, does the, the first one was, does the technology tool minimize complexity? It's important for things to be simpler, right? Does it maximize individual human, individual human power and potential? So is it making us stronger, right? Is it making us do things we couldn't before? Which relates to the third question about, is it helping us reimagine learning experiences? Is the tech doing something that we just was not possible before? And the fourth is, is the education technology enhancing or preserving human connection? And that's like right now, so important, right? If, if, if the tool you're using is actually putting your kid in a silo when they're already siloed in their own home, like my, my opinion is press the abort button and do something else because they are just craving talking to one another and, you know, I wrote in an, in, in an article over the summer, I think it was like, if, if we're gonna keep everybody safe right now, we have to do distance learning right. And one of the biggest complaints about distance learning from parents is that they can't socialize with their friends. And so like, and then, and then we go and send home packets or like, you know, have them just sit and stare at videos or sit and answer questions. And it's like, that is not humanizing technology integration. That is making them objects of learning when they are supposed to be like subjects of their own learning journey, their own learning narrative. Um, And so what I recommend is like trying to move towards active screen time instead of passive screen time. And it's, in my opinion, it's a continuum. You know, it's not like there's a firm hard line between active and passive and everyone's situation is different. So we don't want to place judgment on people who are doing the best they can with the resources they have. But when I say active screen time, I mean, this to me is active screen time. You know, we are having 
a conversation, we're smiling, we're connecting, you know, while I wish it could be over tea in person, it's not. And it's the, oh, there you go. <laughs> um, you know, so I think active screen time is really important. I think moving away from this mindset of like, I've got to download all these apps to be a good teacher. The reality is you need a few and those apps should be apps like this that help you talk with one another. I think apps like Seesaw or Google Drive that help kids snap photos of their work or take videos of themselves and like it serves as a communication device, you know, like that's what should be at the center of our of our choices for apps is like, is it helping me communicate and connect with my kids? The rest is gravy, in my opinion, and the rest can be done, I think, more simply. So that's like in a nutshell what I mean by edtech minimalism. I'm sure none of this is new to you. No, Barbara, it's um, not new, but I I shouldn't tell you what I've been doing since I've seen you. I have a <laughs> green screen studio. I'm learning all these different apps right now. And well, I've, that's different though. Like that, yeah. you're creating something with that, right? You know, and I don't think that, again, it's the idea of minimalism isn't isn't about abandoning anything that's digital, right? Like a green green screen technology as I is is important, right? It's like it's fun too. It's fun. Like kids need to have fun right now. Yeah, I did a session at ISTE. It's curiosity, joy, and play, and uh, I ended up with a dance party. And I'll tell you a little bit more about that off screen. Okay. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> but play, play is active play. screen time. We could do more play. We could do a whole bunch of things, and that's a whole nother book. Yeah, we yeah. could write a book together about what kinds of things we could do. Anyway, I have to I have to pull this together because, um, we like I said, we could go forever. But this is wonderful. So another thing, name your book. Tell us about your book. Oh yeah, so my new book is called Humanizing Distance Learning: Centering Equity and Humanity in Times of Crisis. And truly, it is. Well, there are some tips distance learning in there that I think are really helpful. Um, it really is about codifying a new vision for teaching and learning beyond the pandemic that we can apply even when we're learning in person again. So, and it's so. coming out soon? So it is officially out. Amazon, oh. says, Amazon says it's not, but it is. <laughs> um, ah. You can get it through the Corin website. Um, Barbara, I mailed you yours this morning. You'll, oh, I'll, I can't wait. Yeah, <laughs> I signed it for you. Um, uh, and yeah, so it's out now and I hope everybody can grab a copy of it. I'd want everyone to get it. And then we're going to come back and have a panel with all the people that have read it. <laughs> I love it. I'm in. That sounds in. good. Oh, you're the best, Paul. I just am so honored to know you and, and keep writing, keep speaking, keep sharing. Cause, uh, you have so much, so much to give. It's just wonderful. Thank you, Barbara. Have a wonderful day and, too. and year. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Take care, kiddo.